Abuse is one of the most common subjects discussed in our culture today. Knowing how to respond when someone abuses another person is absolutely vital, something that every church and its members must become proficient at doing. And so in this episode of Life Over Coffee, I want to walk through 10 essentials about abuse. Now, please understand that this treatment about abuse is not exhaustive. I cannot do that in 30 minutes, but I do want to give you 10 things that really must be on everybody's checklist so that we can become more effective soul care providers for the abused and also for their abusers. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and you are listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. This is episode 408, and the title of this episode is The 10-Point Checklist When Abuse Happens. I would love for you to go out on our ministry's website, look for episode 408 under our Life Over Coffee podcast series. What you will see there are the show notes. There is a bulleted outline, the 10 things that I'm going to share with you in this video, in the podcast that I'm building right now. All of that will be there. You can actually watch the video. You can listen to the podcast. And I do want you to take advantage of all of the embedded links that are in these show notes because, again, 30 minutes will not do justice on this vital topic. It is something that we're all familiar with. I would imagine that most people that are listening to this podcast or watching the video are familiar with abuse in the most personal way, that you have been the victim of abuse, that you have been victimized by the sin of another person. And so again, please understand that I cannot do this justice in 30 minutes. However, we do have a ton of resources on abuse, on victimology, victim mindset, and I want you to take advantage of those. And you can find so many of those articles just inside the show notes of episode 408. Let me also make an appeal to you as I move into this uh, podcast on abuse. Our ministry is a training site. We are not a counseling site because, well, honestly, we we can't. We are in cyberspace, and so it's not really practical. Well, it's not even possible for us to come alongside you in a counseling context, especially when abuse is happening. You need someone on site. You need somebody with you, uh, working with you, working with the person who is abused. And and you need that visual interaction and that personal interaction. And because our ministry is in cyberspace, we're not able to do that. But we are a training ministry, and training is something that we can do, even though counseling is something that we can't because of the personal, real-time, FaceTime nature of counseling. But we can train people, and this is my appeal to you. If you are a local church, a pastor, if you're in a position to where you can pinpoint somebody in your ministry, somebody in your local church who can receive training from us, I would encourage you to consider enrolling them in our mastermind program, even the local church paying for them going through our program and setting up accountability measures so that they do go through it, they have the accountability on the church side of things, and then they receive our training. 
What is the benefit for you? Well, the benefit is that you would have a biblical counselor, a liaison between us and you at your local church. We have several churches where our graduates are working. They have been trained, and we have an ongoing relationship with them, sometimes many years after they have graduated. And for a pastor or a pastoral team to have someone on site that can really take the point of training and doing the counseling is a vital need in our local churches, and that is exactly what we do. A pastor can't devote themselves to the work of biblical counseling, not in a full-time way, because what will happen is that it will take them away from shepherding the entire flock because they will be immersed in three or four families that are going through a, a situational difficulty or a relational problem. And so having a biblical counselor, a person who is well-trained on site uh, doing that work, working as a liaison between the leadership of the church and the congregation is a vital uh, person that every church needs, and we would love to train that person but not just train them and release them, but to have an ongoing relationship with them. That's what we want to have, not just an ongoing relationship with the person that we are training and have trained and have graduated, but also have an ongoing relationship with the local churches. And so again, if you're able to consider that and you're in a position where you have identified someone that would be an excellent candidate to be trained, then I would encourage you to think about our mastermind training program, and we would truly love to talk to you about that and see how we can come alongside and implement what we need to to get that person equipped so that they can be a redemptive discipleship value in your local church for your people. Again, this is episode 408, the 10-point checklist when abuse happens. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to roll through 10 things that are absolutely essential. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive treatment, and so I want you to take advantage of the show notes that we have built out for you. And if you are going through abuse, then please jump into all of these links and do that deeper dive so that you can do an in-depth study on abuse and victimization so that you can get the help that you need. And perhaps what would be a good thing for you to do is to share this with your uh, spiritual mentor your leader, your your pastor, your local church, your biblical counselor, if you're part of a counseling ministry where you're receiving help, please share this resource with them. And so uh, this list that I'm going to give you, it's pretty much in actually sequential order of importance. And so the first thing that I would want to communicate to anybody that put, is going through abuse or potentially going through abuse, and that is safety. That is the number one thing. That is absolutely at the top of the list. The question is, are you safe? You have to be safe. You must be secure. And if you are in a marriage relationship, if that's what we're talking about, then we're talking about children as well. The children and the spouse, they have to be safe. And so that is the number one question. I'm going to tease that out just a little bit more later on. But the most important thing, if you are in or you think that you're in an abusive situation, you want to extract yourself from that situation and be safe. We can worry about what needs to happen next, 
later. But the most important thing is for a person in an abusive situation, a potential abusive situation, they think that they're in an abusive situation. At this point, it doesn't even matter if you're wrong about it. If you believe that you're in a situation to where you are in harm's way, then you need to get out of the way. I was just talking to someone today, and they they asked that question, is that a proper prayer? And I, I thought the question was kind of interesting, but I know that there is a teaching out there, and the teaching is it's like, well, you want to suffer for Jesus, and they have this distorted view of suffering. And I told the individual today that I have been meditating actually on the life of David And when David's life was being threatened by Saul, he fled. He got out of the way. Uh, He got out of harm's way. He didn't have this distorted view of, of suffering, and I just want to take up my cross, and I want to suffer for Jesus, and therefore I'm going to keep myself in an abusive situation. No, he, he fled. And so you do what you have to do to ensure your safety. That is number one. This is episode 408, the 10-point checklist when abuse happens. And the most important thing is that you are safe. You want to get into that place, a refuge, a a place of safety. And part of why you want to do that, well, the obvious reason is you want to be secure, you want to be safe. That is obvious. But also, you want to be in a place to where you can think with clarity. The fog needs to lift. Uh, The clutter that is in your mind, when when someone is threatening you or or, or someone is gaslighting you or or someone is um, threatening harm to you, it's very... It's, it's not just very hard. It's impossible to think clearly about what your next moves need to be. And so what you want to do is to get into a refuge. You want to get into a quiet place, a, a undistracted place where someone is not pointing their fingers at you, where somebody is not threatening you, where you're not in a place where violence to yourself, can, to your person can happen. And then the more that you or the longer that you spend in that place, of safety and refuge, the more that you will have clarity and you will be able to think about what your next steps or next moves should be and who you should talk to. And so the number one thing is your safety. You must be safe. Number two is labeling. After you have assured your safety, then you can start talking about what is actually going on. As the fog begins to lift, as your mind begins to unclutter, you begin to have more clarity about not only what's happening inside of you, but also what is happening around the perimeters of your life. You can start thinking about it. Now, what you want to do under point number two is labeling what is abuse? What exactly is happening? Now, when I ask that question, I am not gaslighting you by suggesting that what is happening is not happening, or I'm not suggesting that what you're going through is not valid or it's not real. That's not what I am suggesting here at all. But what I am saying is that you want to label it as clearly as possible. Now, what I prefer as a label is the label sin, because sin is a more copper. It's a small word. It's monosyllabic. It's three letters. But those three letters covers the entire 
entire expanse of the possibilities of what could be happening to you that is dark and evil. That's why sin is a much better word than abuse. I also know that in our culture, the word abuse has been elasticized to such a point that it can mean virtually anything. Now, I'm not downgrading abuse at all, but again, as your mind begins to be uncluttered about what is going on, you want to accurately label what is happening. Why is that important? Well, it's common sense. It's important in any other any other stark or potentially dangerous situation. If you have a health problem, the thing that the doctor wants to do is he wants to examine you to know exactly what the problem is so that we can have the right label. Because once you have the right label, well, then you're able to develop a diagnosis as to what the protocol should be to work through the thing that is happening because you know exactly what is happening. And so labeling what is happening to you is important. I don't care for the word abuse because, one, it has been elasticized to comprehend so many things that aren't really abuse. And then, two, it is also narrow. And so not only is it so big that it comprehends just about everything, but it's also narrow because it can exclude the more accurate labels of what is happening to you exactly. And that's why the word sin is a much better word to describe what is going on. So number one, make sure you are safe. And now as your mind begins to clear, your soul is uh, the amplified noise that is in your soul, and you're not distracted by someone in your face. You can think clearly about exactly what is going on by creating the proper biblical labels. This is what's going on. Then, of course, you want to vet that with other people as you share with the appropriate people what is going on in your life so that they can help you to come up with a clear diagnosis of exactly what is happening to you. And then number three is the word crime. You see, some sins, some abuse is not just a sin, but it is also a crime. For example, molestation. Like we we, we hear a lot these days about minors who have been sexually molested by older people. Rape, obviously, and physical violence, those are forms of abuse that are also crimes. And so as you begin to think clearly about what's going on, you may come to the conclusion that not only is this individual sinning against you, but they are also breaking the law And if they are breaking the law, then you have to report it. Not just you, but also those within your church. The church also has reporting protocols that they have to adhere to. They must. I know some churches don't have uh, these kinds of protocols in place. They don't have this kind of envisioning. And if they don't, they need to uh, work through this so that they know exactly what to do when a crime happens that they are made aware of. They will not only give an account for how they shepherd their people, give an account to God, as the Hebrew writer says in chapter uh, 13. 
13, verse number 17, but they will also give an account to the civil authorities that are over us as well, and we have a responsibility, not just because it's the legal thing to do, it's the right thing to do, and if someone is not not just sinning, but committing a sin in abuse, but that sin also transgresses to the point to where they are breaking the law, then we have to report it. We have to report it because it is a crime, and if the abuse is at that level, we want that kind of accountability for that person who has committed that sin crime. And so as you begin to identify and properly label what is going on, what is happening to you, you also want to make sure you're thinking through that is this not just a distinctive within the sin nomenclature, but this is also a crime as well. Number four, I titled One Flesh. And I want to tease this out just a little bit because I've, I've heard this in my counseling career. And what I mean is, is this. Sometimes a spouse will say, well, it's her problem, or, or they may say that it, it's his problem, and they say that as they say that as though you can dichotomize uh, one flesh. You can dichotomize the husband and wife. This truth also applies to anybody in the body of Christ. And so in your local church, you know, this person has a problem with me. Well, it's their problem, and you, you can't say that. You cannot biblically say that. There are no his problem or her problems. It, it is his problem if it's her problem. It is her problem if it's his problem. And again, if, if a person says that there is a problem, then there is a problem whether there's a problem or not. Let's say, for example, that there isn't a problem. That once you work everything out, there wasn't really a problem. It was much ado about nothing. Well, initially, that person said there was a problem. I have a problem in our marriage. And the other person said, well, I don't have a problem, so it's your problem. No, you cannot say that. When someone says that there is a problem in this relationship, regardless of what that problem is, or even if it's a legit complaint, there is a problem because they're saying that there is a problem. And this is important that we understand this because sometimes we, uh, someone says, I have a problem with you and say, well, that's your problem and you just need to work it out. And we can dismiss it and even try to extract ourselves from the situation when that is not biblically possible. If someone says that there is a problem, then there is a problem in that relationship and you have to deal with it. And I've seen husbands do this. Uh, maybe wives have done this as well, but the husbands will do this. They say, well, she has a problem. You know, she's struggling with, you know, the way that I communicate. I mean, that's her problem. I communicate fine. Well, no, it is your problem because your flesh is having a problem. It's like saying, I cut my hand, but my body is not having a problem with it. No, if you cut your hand, your body is having a problem with it because you are one and the same. And so this idea of one flesh and one body is essential. If it's in the marriage, you're one flesh. There's no dichotomizing of the problems as though there's his problem and her problems, and sometimes the twain do not meet. Or if you're in the body, 
body of Christ and one person is having a problem, then you both have a problem and you have to do as much as depends upon you to live at peace with all people. You cannot extract yourself from it even though you might think that it's not a problem, but the truth is the other person does. And so number four, one flesh, one body, it is a collective relationship problem. Number five is hierarchy. And what I mean by that is that there are no submission rules when one person is sinning against another. There are no submission rules when one person is sinning against another person. Hierarchies come tumbling down. And the mature one needs to step up and speak up about that situation, even if that mature person was previously submitted to that individual. If you're having a problem with your employer, if your employer is sitting against you, hierarchies come tumbling down. There are no hierarchies in at this point. Because here's what happens. This is sometimes like in a marriage relationship, and a, a person will say, well, you just need to submit to him. No, this is not the time to be talking about submission. When, when somebody says that there is a problem in this relationship, then you take care of the problem, you resolve the problem, but the resolution of the problem is not by mandating that you just need to submit. The employer cannot, should not, come along and say, no, you just need to submit. I'm the employer. You're the employee. You have a problem with me. There is a hierarchy. You just need to submit, and let's just get on with the plan. Let's just get on with the program. No, when someone comes and says there is a problem within the relationship, whether it's one flesh, one body, then hierarchies come tumbling down in this moment, and we can't play the submission card that you just need to submit. No, that's not what we're doing here. We're all equal, and if, if the person who is above in the hierarchy is sitting against the person who is submitted to them, then everything flattens out for this moment. Now, the person that is submitted can respect them, and they can respond in a, a humble and mature way, not in a disrespectful. You don't sin in response to sin is what I'm saying, but you also don't stay in this mandated, submitted position. And what I mean by that is some people will use the submission card as a way of manipulating this person to where they can't rectify the situation. No, hierarchies come tumbling down, and we work on the problem number five. Number six is about consent. Do not consent to abuse. Do not acquiesce when someone is abusing you. You see, the point or the primary point when abuse is, is happening is the abuser is trying to make the abused person to do something. They're, they're trying to force something to happen on this individual. And so if you acquiesce to what they are doing to you, well, the abuser just gets exactly what they want. That's the whole reason they were abusing anyway, to manipulate you to get whatever they want. And if you acquiesce, if you consent to the abuse, then you're just feeding the dragon. You're just giving them what they want, and there's no motivation for them to stop doing what they are doing, and so you cannot consent. This goes back to point number one. You want to flee. 
You want to get into a safe place so you can think clearly about it. You want to get away from the abuse. Do whatever you can to get away from this person and don't consent. Now, please understand when I say don't consent and don't acquiesce, I'm not blaming you uh, for what is happening to you. I'm not saying that at all when I say don't acquiesce because you're just giving the person exactly what they want. No, that's not what I am saying, but you want to extract yourself from the situation and and be very clear that you are not consenting to what they are doing because that is exactly what they want you to do because they're trying to manipulate you to do something by force and so do not consent. Number seven, counseling. And what I mean by point number seven is that you want to determine whether you do conjoint counseling or concurrent counseling. Conjoint counseling is when both people come together in the same office at the same time with the same counselor. Concurrent counseling is when the two people are meeting with two different counselors. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because in many cases, it's not wise to do conjoint counseling. Go back to the previous point about consent. Let's say that a wife is being abused by a husband and they go to conjoint counseling where both of them are in the counseling office at the same time. Well, this wife in this case is going to be fearful about being honest with the abuser in the room. Many times that is very unwise to put them in proximity to each other with one counselor talking to both of them for two reasons. One, uh, the person who is being abused will have a very difficult time to be weak, to be vulnerable, uh, to be transparent, to be honest about what is going on in the counseling office. And then two, when they get outside the counseling office, it's probably going to be 10 times worse. I mean, the abuser will just amplify and ratchet up what they are doing based on what the abuser heard during the counseling. And so conjoint counseling typically is not wise in an abusive situation. Concurrent counseling where the parties are separated and there's two different counselors or maybe the same counselor talking to them at two different times to where the two counselors can confer with one another and work the process that way. This is a, a something that really needs to be considered because, again, if you put the – I mean, just think about putting a victim in the room with the person who is abusing them and then trying to get the victim to open up and be honest and be vulnerable. Well, you're actually making – it would be making things a whole lot worse to do conjoint counseling as opposed to concurrent counseling. Number eight is volition. What I mean by volition is sometimes, especially in our, our medicated, disorder-centered world that we have today, is that we want to attach a label, we want to give the person a disorder as an explanation for why they do what they do. Once we do that, we are removing agency from them. They are free moral agents making a decision. It would be exceptional for an abuser to be 
a victim to a disorder as opposed to a person who's making uh, premeditated decisions. And so we don't want to remove volition from them by labeling them by having a disorder. And then now they are a victim and then they go down a medication route. Well, then the chances of them ever coming to a place of repentance and even the possibility of restoring uh, these two people, I mean, it's almost impossible to do at that point because not only is the person being abused a victim, but the abuser is a victim too because now he or she has a disorder because we have taken agency away from them. Number nine is repentance. Prepare for the long haul. And because of time, I just want to make a quick point here about repentance. Forgiveness is not repentance. And sometimes what some counselors do is they drive for forgiveness. If they can just get two people to say, will you forgive me? I forgive you. It is though this person has repented and they can reconcile. Forgiveness is not repentance. Forgiveness is part of repentance. When we teach repentance in our mastermind program, it is a 13-step process, and forgiveness is just one aspect of it. And if your goal is just to get them to transact some kind of verbal, will you forgive me, I forgive you, well, then you're putting the abused person in a very dangerous place. You must deal with their former manner of life, their deep-seated beliefs, their shaping influences, their deceptive thought processes, their blind spots, the deceitfulness of their minds, the renewal of their mind, and putting on a new behavior. There is so much involved in the repentance process. That's number nine. And then finally, number 10, accountability. If you cannot bring the person uh, to a place of repentance, then you want to uh, exercise Matthew 18, the principle in Matthew 18, where you confront them, eventually bringing them before the church, eventually excommunicating them from the church, uh, the church discipline restoration process. And I would put the accent mark on restoration because that is the goal. But sometimes abusers will not repent, and therefore there has to be a discipline process. And that is point number 10, bringing them to a place of intense accountability doing all that you can humanly do to motivate a person to change. And we're talking about Matthew 18. This is episode 408. It's the 10-point checklist when abuse happens. I've walked through these 10 things. There's a lot of links here in these show notes. I would love for you to just spend some time clicking on them. I also have some call-to-action questions at the end that I can't get to in this podcast, but they're for you. Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.